Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As Easter arrives once again, many people around the world naturally start thinking about Jesus and the earliest history of Christianity. It is, after all, at least to Christians, a holiday of commemoration for the death and resurrection of Christ. And the early history and formation of Christianity is such a fascinating and interesting topic. As we've talked about in my many previous episodes on this topic, it is a complex world of different schools and interpretations, lost ancient texts, and intrigue. And as we once again turn to the world of non-canonical scriptures, that is, texts that were not included in the Bible for various reasons, we get to one of the most striking and interesting of the so-called Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Mary. A text that gives a very different interpretation of some of the core theological teachings of Christianity from the mainstream version that we're used to, and which may also hint or, or represent some of the schisms and debates that were being had in the earliest history of the largest religion in the world. The Gospel of Mary is a relatively short work, at least in the form that it survives. It's a text that offers some really interesting theological positions contrary to those of mainstream Christianity, as well as tackling topics of gender and the leadership of women through placing the figure of Mary at its center as a primary disciple and maybe even heir to Jesus. Unlike many of the other famous non-canonical scriptures, such as the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary was not found among the text of the Nag Hammadi Library discovered in 1945. Indeed, it was first uncovered in the 19th century. This is a text that seems to have been rather popular among certain communities of Christians for a few centuries in antiquity, but which then completely disappeared from history with the gradual rise and dominance of orthodoxy. It wasn't until 1896 that it was rediscovered in Egypt, along with a few other texts written in Coptic and dating from the 5th century. This is still the most complete version of the text that we have, but that isn't really saying much. Indeed, the first six pages of the Codex are missing, as well as four full pages right in the middle. With that in mind, we actually only have about half of this text, but that's still enough to glean some of its amazing contents and unique teachings. In the early 20th century, two other fragments of the text were found, both of them written in Greek. These fragments sadly don't include any of the lost parts of the Coptic version, but they are significant for another reason. They are much earlier. The Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Mary both date from the early 3rd century, and so we can be absolutely certain that it wasn't written any later than that time. 
With that said, scholars don't exactly agree on the true dating of the text, although I would say that the current majority consensus is that it probably dates from the early 2nd century. This makes it a significantly early text in the history of Christianity. Not as early as the canonical gospels or the letters of Paul, for example, but still very early. And this gives us an idea of the context in which this text was composed. As we have explored in various earlier videos, the early centuries of Christianity were incredibly diverse and complex. There wasn't, as often assumed, an orthodox church that had to fight off a bunch of heresies. Instead, the early Jesus movement consisted of various different communities, or quote-unquote churches, spread out across the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern world. These communities could have vastly different ideas about even the most fundamental aspects of Christian doctrine. Was Jesus divine or a human messiah? What is his relationship with God? Are his followers to uphold Jewish law or abandon it? What is the nature of salvation? All of these questions were up for debate, basically. Remember, this is before any Nicene creed or church councils that would eventually establish an orthodoxy. This was a world of Christianities, not Christianity, and various doctrinal and practical tendencies existed simultaneously, all with an equal claim to represent the quote-unquote true teachings of Jesus. One such community that eventually crystallized was the so-called Gnostics that we have dedicated a full episode to, with their incredibly complicated cosmology of various eons and an ignorant demiurge as the creator of the physical world. We also have the community associated with the Gospel of Thomas, who are often referred to as Thomasine Christians, that emphasized self-knowledge as the means to salvation and an emphasis on an immanentist, almost monist-adjacent theology. And there were, of course, also those thinkers that were more aligned with what would eventually become orthodoxy, such as the famous heresiologist Irenaeus. In this complex and diverse environment, the Gospel of Mary is composed by one of these communities. The identification of the authors is one that has been speculated on, but it is ultimately impossible to know. With that said, and as will become clear when we explore the contents, the author and audience seems to be strongly familiar or comfortable with Greek philosophy rather than with Judaism as such, suggesting perhaps a Gentile community. Some scholars have suggested that it was indeed composed in a Hellenized Egypt in particular. The Gospel of Mary is often called a Gnostic Gospel, as are basically all the non-canonical scriptures sometimes. Um, and if you've been watching this channel, then you know that I have something of a beef with this broad use of the term. The Gnostics, if that term can be used at all, seems to be a particular community of early Christians associated with a particular kind of theology. And many of the texts that are often labeled Gnostic, such as the Gospel of Thomas, for instance, don't really fit into that category and was more likely written by an independent community of its own. So what's the case with the Gospel of Mary then? Well, basically the same, I would say. I would be careful to call this a Gnostic gospel, because there isn't really much about it that's Gnostic in any way. There is no mention of an ignorant demiurge that creates the world. Um, there is no mention of the Barbalo as a divine principle. Uh, not even any indication of the very clear and distinct dualism of the Gnostics, even though there is a kind of dualism in this text too. Uh, but so many of these features that are so particular to the Gnostics aren't really present in this text. So what's going on with this text? What makes it so unique and why wasn't it included in the canonical Bible? 
Well, again similar to the Gospel of Thomas, it kind of isn't really a gospel in the traditional sense. It doesn't include any biographical stories about Jesus' life or ministry. Instead, it's essentially retelling a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, and then turns to one where Mary is teaching the other followers about some secret teachings of Jesus. Indeed, Mary plays the central role in this text, which is why it's called the Gospel of Mary. Now, it's basically completely certain that it wasn't written by Mary herself, but the work very much revolves around her. But which Mary is this? There are, after all, a few Marys in the life of Jesus. While there have been some speculation among scholars, most would argue that this is indeed Mary of Magdala, or Mary Magdalene, who was, after all, one of the close disciples of Jesus. What's so fascinating about this text is the prominent role that she is given among the group. Indeed, certain sections seem to indicate that she's the foremost disciple out of all of them, and even indicates that Jesus liked her more than the others, thus making her a kind of heir or chief successor in a kind of way. This mirrors some of the famous sections in the Gospel of Philip, where it is also told that Mary had a special status among the disciples, and that, controversially, Jesus even used to, quote, kiss her on the mouth, which has naturally led to all kinds of speculations about their relationship. In any case, when we read the text, we find out that it starts right in the middle of a sentence. As we said, the first six pages of the text are missing, and so we have to sort of guess what's going on here. It seems to be a scene where Jesus has already resurrected and is giving his disciples a kind of last teaching before finally leaving for heaven. So this is a so-called post-resurrection narrative. And from here, in the part of the text that we actually have, there are some truly fascinating quotes and teachings that he conveys. Jesus, who is referred to in the text simply as the Savior, first talks about the fate of matter and describes how all matter will eventually dissolve into its original form. Quote, They will dissolve again into their own proper root, for the nature of matter is dissolved into what belongs to its nature. Already, we see indications here that the contents are influenced by Greek philosophical thinking, and later in the text we'll see more possible traces of things like Platonism and Stoicism. But what's important here is the fact that matter is temporary, including the body. Matter will eventually dissolve and will not endure. Rather, it's the soul that is immortal, our true self. There is no talk of any bodily resurrection at the end of time or punishment in hell in this text, quite the contrary. It seems to deny any such resurrection and the reality of hell, at least in a physical sense. Instead, the Savior urges us to forget about the material and focus on the soul and the spiritual. It is that which survives the death of the body, and thus that that should be focused on. It's after this that the text offers its perhaps the most shocking idea. When asked about sin, the Savior coldly replies, quote, There is no such thing as sin. Rather, you yourselves are what produces sin when you act in accordance with the nature of adultery, which is called sin. What does Jesus mean here? Well, it's basically a continuation of the previous discussion on matter. Since the true human self is only identified as the non-material soul, good and evil, and hence sin, cannot exist on the material physical level. The scholar Karen King says, quote, From this perspective, sin does not really exist insofar as it is conceived as action in the material world, which will be dissolved. At death, the soul is released from the body and ascends to rest with God beyond time and eternity. 
the corpse returns to the inanimate material substance or nothingness out of which it arose. As a result, ethical concern is focused upon strengthening the spiritual self, since it is the true, immortal, real self. True sin is an estrangement from God, of not realizing one's true self as the soul that can ascend to God and in which the divine world is imminent. This focus on the bodily and material is described by the Savior as a kind of adultery, a betrayal of our true nature with the false self of the body. This dualism is already somewhat Platonist in nature, but becomes even more so as the Savior says, quote, Become content at heart while also remaining discontent. Indeed, become contented only in the presence of every true image of nature. In other words, seek only the divine world to which the soul has access, which here seems very similar to the Platonic world of forms, not the material world. This is really the core of the teachings of the Gospel of Mary. It is through the teachings of the Savior that we reach salvation. A teaching that we are to turn inward to our true selves to find the divine realm there. And this is perhaps best expressed in the following section, where the Savior really kind of seals the deal. Here, the Son of Man, or the Child of Humanity, represents that divine image within, that divine realm that the soul can ascend to. Quote, Be on your guard, so that no one deceives you by saying, Look over here, or look over there. For the child of humanity exists within you. Follow it. Those who search for it will find it. After this mic drop, Jesus then tells his disciples basically to go out and preach the gospels, right? Spread the good news and the teachings that he has conveyed to them. And then he basically just leaves, right? Permanently. This time he leaves for heaven. Uh, and as a result of this, the disciples aren't exactly pleased. In fact, they're completely distraught. They all start weeping in despair. Uh, they're all scared, essentially, because they believe or think that if they are going to go out and spread the message that Jesus taught, then they will also suffer the same fate as he did. That is execution, basically. So all the disciples are crying and in despair completely, all except one, Mary. Indeed, this is where Mary enters the picture as the main character of the story. Significantly, she here takes on the role of a teacher, even of the other disciples. She is the only one that isn't sad about the Savior's departure, because she is the only one that truly understood his message. If our true self is the immaterial soul, the death of the body is nothing to fear. This high status and role of Mary is really interesting, given the later attitudes in Christianity towards women teachers in the church. Here, it is Mary who comforts the other disciples. She's asked by Peter, quote, Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than all other women. Tell us the words of the Savior that you remember, the things you know that we don't because we haven't heard them. After which she starts teaching, telling them about what the Savior taught only her in secret. She tells them about a vision she had of him, as well as basically going through an entire narrative of the ascent of the soul. Sadly, it's precisely here that we are missing another four pages of the text right in the middle of the most juicy stuff. But once the text resumes, it becomes clear that she is describing how the immaterial soul can gradually escape this body and material world through an encounter with seven so-called powers that try to drag the soul down and keep it in this fleshly world. 
These seven powers are darkness, desire, ignorance, zeal for death, the realm of the flesh, the wisdom of the flesh, and the wisdom of the wrathful person. As the soul ascends on its journey to God, it has to fight off all these powers, transcend them until it finally escapes and can rest in the silence of its true nature, a state of true peace as it has reached the divine. Quote, From this hour on, for the time of the due season of the age, I will receive rest in silence. Mary says this as she herself falls silent, almost embodying the soul at peace. What the Savior earlier referred to when he said, quote, Become content at heart and acquire peace within yourselves. This is the main thrust of the whole gospel. To attain this peace means to turn within to our true self and help that self ascend from the material to its eternal rest in the peace of the divine embrace. But as Mary has finished telling the other disciples about this, she's basically attacked by them. Andrew first basically questions the entire thing by saying that these are uh, strange teachings that they have never heard from the Savior themselves. And then Peter jumps in and also criticizes and questions Mary for the fact that the Savior supposedly taught secret teachings in private and even more so to a woman. Here we get to the very interesting discussions of gender in the text. Mary is very distraught over these comments and starts to weep while trying to defend herself. And it is another disciple, Levi, that takes her side and starts criticizing Peter for being so hot-tempered. Quote, Now I see you contending against the woman like the adversaries. For if the saviors made her worthy, who are you then for your part to reject her? Assuredly, the saviors' knowledge of her is completely reliable. That is why he loved her more than us. This is a significant quote, especially that last part where Levi says that Jesus apparently loved Mary more than the other disciples. This again echoes the ideas expressed in the Gospel of Philip, where Mary is given a very special role as the favorite disciple of Jesus. And then after this, the text basically ends, with the disciples deciding to go out and spread the Gospels just like the Savior had asked them to before. But at the core of this text, especially in the interdisciple tension at the end, lie some really interesting themes that might reflect schisms in the early church. The discussion about women as leaders or teachers seems to have been one of the many discussions that were had at the time, alongside other discussions regarding Christology and salvation, for example. The authors of the Gospel of Mary certainly seems to have been a community that had no problem with women as leaders as they placed Mary Magdalene in such a prominent position. This is in opposition to those sentiments expressed in, for example, the letters of Paul and in other pieces of scripture that ended up in the Bible that seems to rather highly criticize the idea of women as teachers of men. What's so interesting is that it is Peter who takes the critical side here against Mary. Peter is, after all, the disciple who is the rock on which the church is built, thus representing what would become the orthodoxy. In other words, are we seeing in this text a reflection of real debates that were had in the early Christian communities, and maybe even among some of the disciples themselves? That's basically it. This is a text that not only gives us a fascinating look into some early discussions about gender and leadership, but also contains some truly remarkable theological teachings. The text never neglects the crucifixion of Jesus. Indeed, unlike the Gospel of Thomas, it seems to refer to this event directly when the disciples are afraid of suffering the same fate as the Savior. 
At the same time, though, it's not this death of Jesus on the cross that is at the core of salvation, like for Orthodox Christianity. Instead, it is the teachings of the Savior, and following those teachings that can help the soul to salvation. A teaching where our true self is not the material body, but the immaterial soul, which can transcend the physical by ascending through the different powers until it reaches the utter silence and peace of its true nature with the divine. This is thus a text that has features in common with various philosophical traditions. There isn't much that is quote-unquote Jewish about the teachings here at all. Instead, we can see more clear traces of Platonism, Stoicism, and perhaps even Hermeticism, which suggests to scholars that the author and audience of this text might have been Hellenic Gentile Christians, perhaps living in Egypt, as we said earlier. It's truly an amazing little text, and in my opinion, one of the most interesting of the non-canonical scriptures. While it wasn't included in the canonical Bible, um, it seems to have been pretty popular for the first few centuries of, of early Christianity, um, right up until the 5th century, which is where we have the, 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 the latest manuscripts dated, right? The, the last manuscripts that we know of are from the 5th century, and so it seems that around that time, which is at around the same time that you know the so-called orthodoxy had started to really develop and, and become... Um, set in a way, at around that time, the Gospel of Mary seems to go out of fashion, so to say. But before this, you know, just the fact that we have three different manuscripts, three examples of this text, and in two different languages, that's more than most of these old texts that suggest that this was actually a pretty popular text for the first few centuries. But even today, it can help us contemplate the context and environment in which the largest religion in the world was gradually formed over the first centuries of the Common Era. Thank you all so much, and I will see you next time.